The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, Kinky Connections, and Kinky Education. We're kinky, done differently. what women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self. With questions asked by a guy. And now here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to the final show of 2021. It's been quite the year, hasn't it? I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, and today we are going to talk to somebody who is visualizing the next level of sex education. She's doing it in the Pacific Northwest and bringing sexopedia to the masses. Nicole K. Nichols, PhD, is an associate teaching professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle. Over the past eight years, Nicole has built her class, The Diversity of Human Sexuality, into the University of Washington's largest and most popular undergraduate course in its history, with close to 4,000 enrolled students each year. Nicole is the co-author of the textbook, Human Sexuality, A Critical Introduction, and in 2019 delivered the TED Talk, Students on Top, A Guide to 21st Century Sex Education. She's an active member of a variety of societies for teaching human sexuality and is a three-time University of Washington Distinguished Teaching Award nominee. Now, on what women and other wonderful humans want, it's Nicole McNichols. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. And as always, we start with the first five, five questions for associate teaching professor, Nicole McNichols. First time you ever taught a sex education class. And the reason I ask, I've seen your TED talk. Oh my goodness. Well, yep, that is quite a story. So I was a new professor in the department and I was trying to, you know, do a good job and work hard and prove to everyone that, you know, they had made the right decision uh, hiring me. And um, I was, you know, my PhD is in social psychology. So I had not done, um, you know, graduate work, although human sexuality can fall underneath that larger umbrella of social psychology, it wasn't something that I specifically studied. So, however, I was a teaching assistant for a number of years for the instructor that had taught that human sexuality course. So anyway, fast forward, and I'm a new hire in the department, and the professor who had been teaching this human sexuality course for the past 30 years falls and breaks her leg literally two weeks before the start of the quarter. And at that point can't teach obviously because she can't stand on a stage or behind a podium. And so the department is frantically trying to find somebody to fill in for her. And since I was trying to do a good job, I raised my hand and, uh, you know, nobody else really wanted to do it. Um, I was pregnant at the time. So I, I think maybe they thought I at least knew, you know, something about the subject. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I took it from there. And, you know, I was really lucky in that the professor who, you know, whose leg was broken, who had taught the class really kind of took me, took me under her wing. And, Honestly, every night before every lecture, it was a two hour conversation with her 
becoming really, really versed in what her particular notes were and style was <clears throat> and exactly the content that she used to teach the course. Um, so anyway, so, you know, that went well. It was definitely stressful given how last minute it was and given that I needed to, you know, have a, I went through a very steep learning curve. Um, but a couple of years later, she decided to retire. And I was lucky enough that the department asked me to take over that role. And um, I have, so I've been teaching that class now for about the last eight years. And it is really, I describe it as a passion project because, uh, you know, the course when I inherited it, it was about 300 students twice a year. And since then I've grown it into something that is now 1200 students three times a year. So it's very, it's a very, it's the most popular course at the University of Washington. And, you know, I just view it as something where I'm just trying to teach students about sex positivity and to feel empowered and to understand their bodies and to understand about sex and sexuality and to be more accepting of others and to feel more in their own bodies and in their own, own minds and be happier. So, so that's kind of been, uh, so I know that's a long answer, but that is kind of how I ended up where I am today. <laughs> First talk you can ever remember you had about sex? I remember my mom coming into my bedroom when I was getting ready for bed one night and I was super young. I think I was like six or seven. And she taught me about um, she, we had to talk about puberty and we had to talk about what periods were and what bodies were and what types of changes bodies went through. And I just remember her telling me about these things, but her also saying, you know, my mom was raised Catholic and, you know, she told me a story about how, you know, she went through puberty and, you know, first got her period. She, you know, she thought she was bleeding to death. She had no idea. No one had ever said anything about this. Um, and it was, the whole thing was a terrifying experience. And I remember her telling me that and telling me how, she really wanted to make sure I knew this at a really young age and that I continue to understand about sex. So, so that's, that's my first time remembering it, but I mean, I, I really did grow up in a household that's more kind of open about sex probably than most. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if it actually has anything to do with this, but uh, you know, even though my mom's Catholic, my dad's Jewish, so I'm, I'm half Jewish. And I feel like maybe that had something to do with it, but there just was more of like a relaxed atmosphere around sex and sexuality. Things were kind of talked about more with like a sense of humor a lot. And it was really sort of something that was viewed as, you know, not something that needed to be shameful or stigmatized. And so, yeah, so I think that that's, you know, so I think from those conversations, I just kind of grew up always being comfortable about the topic. First time you ever had a conversation as an adult and didn't blush? Um, that would have to be in high school. Um, and I, so I went to an all girls school and I remember having a sex education class and they taught us all about anatomy. And then they spent like, you know, like maybe a minute talking about what the clitoris was and what the clitoris does. And then I just remember with everyone in my class for like, an hour after that in the student lounge, we were all trying to draw diagrams and figure out, okay, wait, where is it exactly? How does it work? What do you do? Like that was clearly the thing we were the most interested in. So I remember not being embarrassed about that, just really being like hungry for information. First time you ever heard the term non-binary and your reaction to it? Um, I, gosh, you know, it's hard to say specifically the word non-binary. I'd have to say that was a couple of years ago, but I do remember distinctly um, when I was having these conversations, when I first took over the, um, sex, the sex class that I teach now with this other professor. And I remember her having a conversation with me about how, you know, it's really interesting because nowadays there are some students who use they, them as pronouns, and that's just so hard to get used to. And it just, you know, and she was like, I think it's great that there's such diversity. And she's like, it's just amazing how things are changing. And I remember, I remember thinking like, okay, they, them got it, check. And having it feel like not like that didn't seem weird to me or strange or like hard to grasp in any way. Like, it just seemed like, okay, that, you know, and there's, you know, one more thing to learn. And it didn't seem, you know, 
unnatural or out of the ordinary in any way. So, so I do, I almost remember like learning about pronouns before learning about the term non-binary. I think pronouns were kind of more of a um, sort of talked about thing at that time, but non-binary, gosh, I don't know, because I've been talking about diversity. I mean, honestly, I feel like I've been talking about gender diversity before gender diversity was cool. <laughs> Honestly, it's something that I have always stressed in my class that I have always believed in that I've always believed and taught like there's nothing else in biology that falls into this discrete binary category. Why would we expect sex and gender to do that? So um, yeah, so forever, I guess. <laughs> First time you had a student come up to you and say, you have made the biggest difference in my life from what you've taught me. Um, my first year teaching, and so that was um, in a, uh, you know, I, I remember, well, first of all, so that the first time it wasn't even my human sexuality class, it was a social psychology class that I taught. But since we're talking about sex, um, in my human sexuality class, it was the first time I taught it. And it was a student who, had grown up um, in a family where they were taught that basically they were coming to terms with their sexual orientation and they realized during the course that they were gay and had grown up believing and being taught that it was a sin to be gay. And I think through kind of understanding the complexity and fluidity of sexual orientation in my class, they were finally kind of able to get to a place where they felt kind of accepting and um, you know empowered by this new knowledge they had of themselves. More still to come on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Stay tuned. Have you ever wanted to try something a little kinky in the bedroom but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports. No, not the jet ski kind. And you really want to fulfill their fantasy, but you're nervous. That's totally normal. I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour, and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about my friends at Lotus Blooms. Lotus Blooms is an adult shop with a different kind of feel. You'll notice the difference when you walk into the warm, welcoming shop where everyone is welcome and celebrated. They offer a beautiful collection of size-inclusive lingerie and steel bone corsets, and their staff loves helping folks find something they feel amazing in. They also carry a curated collection of body-safe sex toys and vibrators, impact toys, and restraints. And their incredible staff are trained as educators, and they look forward to helping you explore your pleasure. Visit them in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., or shop online at www.lotusblooms.com. This is Tanya Tate. And have you listened to my podcast? Tanya Tate presents MILFs Making Money. I share a whole lot of positivity, tips and tools on how myself and other women in the adult industry make money on premium social media platforms. If you want to hear me interview many different guests, then get yourself over there. MILFsMakingMoney.com and you can also search my name, Milf's Making Money, on all of your usual podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening to What Women Want podcast, make sure you get yourself over and subscribe to my podcast, MilfsMakingMoney.com. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram 
And for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. And now back to this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Welcome back to the show, joined by Associate Teaching Professor at the University of Washington. And she won't say it in the way most people would say it, but bow down to Washington. <laughs> kind of has a different connotation in this particular show, I would think. But you understand what I'm talking about, <laughs> Nicole McNichols. You mentioned in your TED Talk, which I will link to in the show notes, that you were handed a textbook when you first started, and you realized that the words in that textbook would never be up to date unless you did something. Tell me about that process. Yes. So I, when I first started teaching the class, I started using a traditional textbook as I had in other classes that I had taught in the department. And what I quickly realized was that this textbook, which was kind of considered to be sort of the best in the industry, um, it was really filled with language that was really stigmatizing. So it would talk about things like when sex development goes awry, instead of talking about, you know, I describe it as the beautiful diversity of intersex conditions, right? I mean, there are the beautiful diversity of sex development. I mean, why do we have to call it things going awry? Um, you know, with gender diversity, there was sort of this othering that kind of occurred in the language. With things like kinks, it talks about it, the whole title of the chapter is atypical sexuality. I, I just feel like that's such an othering term. Um, you know, all throughout the text, there just were sort of these, you know, these sort of hints in the language that kind of shamed anything that wasn't sort of along this heteronormative binary way of thinking. And students really responded to that, right? I mean, not surprisingly, a lot of them were like, hey, you know, this is just not okay. This book is kind of, you know, the language it uses is not great. And it kind of makes us feel sort of not totally, you know, understood. And, and so I took that to heart and I decided that I would write my own textbook to kind of try to give students the information that I thought that they really needed presented in a way that was, you know, presented the most current cutting edge research, but that was also medically accurate and comprehensive and sex positive and brought in examples from, you know, the current events um, to kind of illustrate all of these topics is, is such a, a highly relevant course. Um, and it also enabled me, you know, it essentially what had happened over the years that I've been using the textbook is I had started just developing other notes and PowerPoint slides that had tons of information that I basically be handing to students and say, okay, ignore that chapter, just focus on this, ignore that chapter, or just focus on those three paragraphs in the beginning of section five. So it was really kind of all disjointed. So writing my own textbook kind of allowed me to take all my thoughts and all the information and integrate it into a way that was really much more cohesive. And, um, and it's also, I also, my textbook's online. So it um, allows me to ask questions that are more interactive. So for example, there are a lot of opinion questions that will ask students to kind of reflect on topics, either in terms of how they, um, you know, think about events that are happening in the, in the world that relate to the topics they're reading about, or, you know, as topics relate to themselves. So that kind of allows them to post things and get into discussions within the textbook about those topics. Um, so yeah, so and the, um, the, the textbook is it's published through Top Hat and um, it's, uh, you know, human sexuality. Um, I think it's current perspectives in a, in a diverse society. And it's, um, yeah, I highly recommend it if you are looking for a, <laughs> a, a classroom textbook for your human sexuality class. <laughs> and you jokingly call it Sexopedia. Oh, yes, I call my course Sexopedia, because exactly what I did is I took a lot of the perspectives that I kind of was, you know, became even aware of from students. And, you know, I have a very collaborative approach with the course because I don't really view in a subject like that that's first of all, extremely broad. I mean, it's covering everything from biology to psychology to sociology. I don't really view it as my job to kind of 
say that I'm perfect and have all the answers and you, the student, should bow down to me and just absorb whatever I'm saying and accept it as gospel truth, right? I want students to be challenging and questioning and taking the concepts that I give them and thinking about how they apply to them and unpacking them. And a lot of times students will do that and will come to me with perspectives that I haven't even thought about. And so, you know, even I think a lot of professors you know, traditionally kind of get very defensive when that happens. They feel like they're being attacked by a student or criticized. And, you know, I try to tell students in the beginning of my class, please, you know, I beg of you, if you see something that I can be doing better in the textbook that I can change or something in the course, or if there's a different way to describe something or a different, you know, idea that you think should be mentioned, come to me because the course I feel gets better every quarter as students are able to lend and contribute their ideas. And those ideas get integrated into the content. Um, and it just makes it sort of constantly evolving. And I think that just makes it better and more interesting for everyone. And with over 4,000 enrolled students every year through the quarters, there is no one size fits all in this particular curriculum. There is no way that there is just one perspective because everybody brings their own. Exactly. And exactly. The thing, one of the things I loved in hearing your talk was just how many different perspectives people had about what they wanted to get out of the class. Exactly. Some as simple as how can I please my girlfriend to others going, I need to understand myself. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is students come into the class with such a diverse array of, you know, first of all, a diverse array of information. A sort of background knowledge, right? I mean, there isn't any federally mandated sex education, which means the decision of whether sex ed will be offered in schools is left up individually to the states. And, um, you know, until basically November of last year, Washington state did not require that any type of sex education be taught in schools. And obviously a lot of students, uh, you know, in my class are from Washington state. It is a state university and they knew nothing about sex. I mean, I had students coming in who, who, you know, knew very little. And then I, there are a lot of international students who come from very conservative countries where there's absolutely no sex education. And, but then you also, I also had students who come in who, knew a great deal about sex and sexuality and who knew a great deal about things like LGBTQI plus issues and identities and advocacy. Um, and, you know, most students, if they came in with understandings of anatomy, they maybe knew the basics, but they didn't really understand particularly the anatomy that's linked to sexual pleasure, for example, or, you know, orgasm and sexual response. So, um, so, you know, no matter what kind of knowledge they were bringing in, as diverse as it was, I did feel like I was able to, you know, meaningfully expand on it um, in a way that, that they felt was useful. But yeah, I mean, in addition to that, you have students coming in who are saying, my goal is that I've never been taught anything about sex education. And I just want to learn, you know, what, how my body works and how other people's bodies work and what is gender identity and, you know, kind of the basics, you know, to people who are, you know, interested in learning more, yeah, about gender identity or sexual orientation or sexual harassment or people, you know, have questions about, um, you know, sex work or they have questions about, um, you know, kink and they have questions about multiple orgasms. I mean, all of those things basically have their own chapter and I go into in really great detail. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's cool because I think people come in with sort of an idea ahead of time of what they want to learn, but then it's kind of like they leave and they didn't even know that they, you know, what, what other questions there were out there to ask. And I think they kind of, you know, my goal is for them to come out feeling really kind of changed and more empowered. I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball at you by sharing a personal story. Oh, good. And I've shared it on the show a number of times. I never got the talk from my parents. I also had sex education. I went to an all boys school and it was very rudimentary and I didn't get a lot out of it. Maybe I was falling asleep in biology class that day. It was like one week of biology class. Uh -huh. And when I had my first orgasm, mm -hmm. 
it was happening when I was watching the show Batman with Batgirl and Catwoman interacting. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Realizing that I actually watched the original series when I was three years old <laughs> and had already watched all of that before. Fast. And the second time it happened and the third time it happened and the fourth time it happened, I still didn't know what an orgasm was but this was making me feel good. Wow. Uh -huh. Now, when it comes to regular sex or regular or normal, which is an awful word, mm -hmm. I'm still trying to play catch up here because this is what's been making me feel good. What is this tab A slot B <laughs> version uh -huh. of sex? Yeah. And so my life has been this journey of trying to figure out how these two things work together. And I originally thought it had to be one or the other. And then through 20 years of marriage, it had to be the other the entire time because she was very kink shamey and just had very little, very little of a, of an imagination about it. Uh-huh. And now that I'm single and I'm on my own, I'm finally able to just enjoy who I am rather than worrying about, well, am I going to have a kinky partner? Or am I going to have a vanilla sex partner or what? I love that. So when people come into your class, have you seen instances where people are confused as to what the heck is going on and they are literally going help teach me what's going on because I'm not sure what is yeah I mean I think I think most of them are in that situation right I mean I think most of them are in you know they're kind of entering into their sexual lives and they are you know either trying to figure out sort of you know maybe I'm kinky maybe you know what is my sexual orientation I mean one thing we know today is you know 20 percent of you know, Gen Z basically, you know, identifies as being non-binary. So I think that the idea that you just come in and automatically know exactly what your gender identity is and what your sexual orientation is, and that that's just set in stone, that's kind of an idea that is, you know, very dated. I think a lot of people are still coming to terms with, well, what is my sexuality and my gender expression? Um, and then, yeah, I think a lot of them are kind of exploring kink. And I think a lot of them are exploring sex toys and what kinds of different, you know, kind of, uh, you know, creativity can you bring into the bedroom? I think that kink has really become very normalized. I mean, I think most of them are, you know, either using, you know, kink or they're, they're, you know, pornography is something we talk a lot about. And just this idea that you can, you know, people have, students have grown up feeling very maybe ashamed about their porn use habits. But, you know, we talk about how so long as the porn is something that's ethically sourced, meaning that the actors and actresses are being fairly paid and they're not being coerced into doing anything they don't want to do, that there's nothing wrong with watching porn, right? I mean, it's one thing if it starts to interfere with your life, right? I mean, if you can't, you know, form relationships or feel like you're addicted to it and can't get out of the house. But assuming that's not the case, there's no reason for people to feel guilty about their porn use habits. So that's also sort of a big kind of eye opener for a lot of students. Mm -hmm. But most of my goal in with all of this is really just to normalize all this, right? Like everyone's <clears throat> kind of judging themselves and so worried that they're different and so worried that what they're experiencing is strange. And I really try to aim to people to kind of ease people's insecurities about that and make them realize that a lot of people feel the way they do. And a lot of people question the things that they question. And there's just no reason for there to be any shame around this, right? People just need to be able to feel comfortable and to, you know, kind of be in the moment with sex, to be kind of mindful with sex, meaning that they're not doing it based off of this third party perspective where they're watching or observing themselves, you know, having sex from a place where they're actually inhabiting their own body and feeling the sensations and doing it from a place that's truly non-judgmental. You know, I think that's kind of where we are when we're our happiest is when we're not judging ourselves and not looking at ourselves from the outside in, but just sort of allowing ourselves to be and embracing that. We were talking before we started recording about Instagram accounts. Yeah. Hey, follow my Instagram accounts. And I found you on Instagram. 
Yet Instagram is probably the biggest offender because of credit card issues and such of we don't want you to see anything like that. Yeah. Or we're worried that if somebody shows you themselves in a latex catsuit that you're going to think it's sexy and that's against our terms of service. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is definitely true. And I think it's really kind of astonishing how sex negative the company is. I mean, that, that really is, you know, such an important point. And I see all the times there's so many wonderful accounts that I follow that have beautifully curated content that's, I shouldn't say beautifully curated and that, that makes it sound like it's fake. It's more just that it's really kind of, I think, pretty cutting edge just in terms of the, you know, it, it'll put up taboo topics and show taboo images. And I think it's important, you know, the goal of those accounts isn't to, you know, try to arouse people for no reason. The goal of those points is it posts is to normalize this stuff so that we don't all feel so ashamed. And mm -hmm. I think Instagram's really missing the point by um by trying to to limit that and censor that but you know when you mention instagram i i actually think you know another issue that in my mind is just as big which has been in the news lately a lot is just sort of the mental health toll that it mm -hmm. can take on everyone and i think that, that ties into sex because you know, we're so used to thinking that our bodies need to look a different, a certain way, or that they need to, you know, operate a certain way, or that we should be having multiple orgasms at the, you know, touch of a, you know, as soon as somebody touches you. And I think that, you know, social media is set up that we only show kind of the best or the best parts of our lives, right? It's not real in that sense. And so I think it can really kind of kind of set people up for a lot of insecurity and anxiety that again, I think kind of inhibits people from being able to just sort of live and enjoy their sexuality and not feel like they're being judged or feeling like they're constantly comparing themselves to these sort of ridiculous standards. So I think that's also an issue personally. I have to laugh because I wrote a blog on FetLife earlier this week talking about when things don't go as planned. And I had just received my first latex catsuit after waiting forever to get one. And I put it on and the legs were too long and a little bit baggy at one point. And I'm looking at myself and I'm looking at the picture and I'm going, this isn't how I pictured it. <laughs> <laughs> now, the feeling of wearing it, amazing. Amazing, yeah. This isn't what I pictured. Yeah, And I think that when it comes to sex and it comes to relationships in 2021, moving to 2022, a lot of the things aren't as we picture. Mm -hmm. And you have to have an open mind to all the different possibilities. And so my question to you is this. The university's number one class is a course on human sexuality. Is the university proud of that fact? Or is it that you have created the ultimate little niche that people said, hey, we discovered it. Let's take advantage of this and let's learn as much as we can. Um, I mean, my sense is that the university is incredibly proud of it. They've been amazingly supportive. Um, I have an incredible chair of our department, who um, Cheryl Kaiser, who's been in extremely supportive. They're, you know, they're they thank me a million times a day for for offering it. Um, you know, it's a pretty progressive university, and you know, I'm really, I'm extremely proud to be a professor there. So, I mean, I, I feel like they've been very supportive. They've, you know, they wrote a feature about the class and me in, in the UW magazine. Um, they're always trying to connect me with, you know, different news sources for interviews. So, um, so I think it's wonderful. I don't think it was always like that. You know, I know that the instructor who taught the course before me, 
um, that she felt like the course was always kind of in danger of getting shut down, that people mm -hmm. thought, oh, well, it's just sex, right? Like, how important is that? And they, you know, they viewed it as, you know, is this, does this really, does this course even belong in the psychology department? Is it something that important? But, you know, I think that um, that has totally changed. I, I think there's no way this course will ever go anywhere else. Um, it's, um, it, I feel, uh, to me, it feels massively appreciated, but I'm really lucky that I'm teaching this at a time when I'm teaching it because I think 10, 15 years ago, it would have been a completely different, I know it was a completely different story. So um, yeah, so I, I, I'm lucky that it's, you know, almost 2022 and, and not 2002. <laughs> Having lived in Seattle for 20 years, I know that it is a city that embraces change. It is a city that taught me more about what being a human is like than any other place that I've lived. And that included places like Dallas, Texas, Washington, DC, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, some pretty big cities that have pretty powerful bases. But Seattle is just Seattle. And a lot of people don't understand just what kind of atmosphere that is. Would this kind of course work in different parts of the country? Or do you think that in different parts of the country, they're still about 10 years ago, where they're like, we're not quite sure if we're going to do this quite yet? I think it's the latter. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, you know, Seattle is a pretty special place, right? I mean, it is a very progressive city. We do embrace change. We are about being accepting and being diverse. Those are qualities that we like to celebrate. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, do I think this class would do well in Portland? Yeah. Do I think this class would do well in, you know, a conservative town in the Midwest? Probably not. So, I definitely think that it, you know, it absolutely, you know, we're trying to get to a place where that's not the case, right? However, I will say that, you know, you know, there, there are plenty of, you know, that's kind of why I wrote my textbook, because even though there may be towns and cities that for the most part are conservative, there still are like really good universities and colleges in those towns that are still trying to teach this topic. So, um, you know, for example, I know they use my textbook, or at least I, I assume they still do. I know they, at the last time I checked, they used my textbook at the University of Georgia, right? And so and that's not someplace what I would automatically assume would be like the most open, tolerant type of geographic location. But the fact that they are teaching my class, which obviously reflects all of my ideas and, and you know, what I view as being the most important topics, around, you know, with a lens of diversity and acceptance and inclusion, you know, I think that kind of, that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. um, so I do, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we're going in that direction. And I think it's just a question of, you know, pushing <laughs> and just sort of continuing to get the message out there and continuing to do, you know, podcast interviews like these and just, the, you know, the putting, putting the messages out there that it's about time to, you know, start celebrating and accepting this stuff and not putting our heads in the sand and pretending that ignoring it and shaming it is going to do anybody any good. I'm going to use the craziest analogy here, but it works for Seattle. That's for darn sure. Mm -hmm. Are we kind of living in the era where this generation that lives right now will be the one that makes sex education more in the mainstream, kind of like soccer was not very much in the mainstream for so many years, but they kept saying new generations are getting more and more used to it. And now look what soccer has become in the United States, how the Sounders have 45,000 people going to every game and it's what everybody's talking about. You picture that 30 years ago. Here it would I was never happen. Yeah. See, here I was expecting the analogy to be about coffee since it was Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> no, or rain. Uh, or rain. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very much a rave green believer. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I know I think you're absolutely right. 
Um, I mean, when I look at certainly my students, they are extremely progressive. Um, and, you know, I, I think probably, you know, at least a fifth of them identify as being non-binary. And I think that today's Gen Z, they just are, I think they really think about things differently than general, you know, even millennials. I think they think about things much differently than millennials. And certainly, you know, my generation, you know, I guess I think I'm Gen X. Um, and so what, you know, and certainly Gen Y, but I think that they are, yeah, I think that I, I see that happening. I see that sex positive sex education will become something that is taught in most schools. And I, I see them carrying that torch. Um, you know, at the same time, it's sort of frightening. I think, you know, when you kind of look at the country and you see that there really are still these pockets of, you know, real pushback and, you know, real fear with these ideas and, you know, without getting too political, I think you see some, some, you know, pockets of the country where no matter your age, they're sort of very threatened by the idea of progress. So I think that it'll continue to probably be a challenge, you know, maybe politically, but who knows? I mean, I am really, I, you know, as a professor who comes into contact with, you know, people who are, you know, age, you know, 20, 18 to 22, <clears throat> I can tell you, I'm really impressed by their, you know, the complexity of their thinking and by the questions they ask and by the ideas that they get excited about and about the conversations that they want to have, because it is way different than it was even five years ago, I think, in terms of how open and accepting they are. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going in a good direction overall. Quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of sex education when we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Hello, I'm Jesse Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. Hi. This is Rachel Leadham, AKA The Conscious Masochist. I'm an author and sadomasochism integration mentor who encourages the mindful exploration of your dark side. I offer astrological birth chart readings to interpret your sadomasochistic blueprint through the clues found within your chart. You can learn more about my work, including the ebook Conscious Masochism, at my website, www.rachelleadham.com. And join us on Instagram at The Conscious Masochist. And be sure to check out my episode in the archives of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes, Mistress, now available on Kindle, and you can order your copy at yesmistress.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please, remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to the show where we are pleased to be joined by Nicole McNichols, Associate Teaching Professor at the University of Washington, who has the most popular class on campus with sex education. And we've talked a little bit about how sex education lives in today's society. What's the future of sex education? Because you've been talking about sex education in the 21st century and how it will progress. Where do we go from here? Well, you know, when you ask that question, um, where my brain immediately goes to is sex tech, um, because there's a lot in, you know, in the, the near future, I think that we're going to be, you know, so for example, um, 
things that sort of utilize virtual realities. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, being able to, you know, go into a virtual reality where you're able to have sex with some kind of person who you've designed or who is part of your fantasy. Um, they have different types of technology now that can attach to your, you know, or that, or that are coming, for example, that can be attached to your spine where, you know, at the press of a button, somebody automatically just has an orgasm. Um, you know, there's already types of, you know, different types of sex toys that can be operated wirelessly. So your partner could be across the country and could be, you know, having control over a vibrator, for example, that you're both using. Um, I think it's, you know, so I think that it's really interesting, you know, just in terms of the directions that we're going with technology that will make sex better and more satisfying and will, you know, I think be able to normalize, you know, to leave with a push of a button, you can go into a virtual reality and play around with any kind of kink that you, you know, might be interested in trying. Now, you know, what's interesting is I think that that will also bring up a lot of ethical questions. So, you know, for example, with a virtual reality, if somebody decides that they're going to want to have sex with someone who resembles you or resembles your spouse or who resembles your child, right? What say do you have? What kinds of privacy rights exist in that world? Do you get to tell that person they're not allowed to do that? Or do you have no say since it's not an actual person that they're having sex with? It's not actually you or your spouse or your child. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, maybe, in, and also in terms of sex therapies, right, I think that we'll be able to see that, you know, with those types of technologies, we'll be able to help people who have, you know, struggle with, you know, different types of performance anxieties or arousal disorders. Um, so I think a lot of, you know, I see sort of two things for sex education. My, my hope, as we touched upon before the break, was that we're really headed in a direction where we're going to be more sex positive and there's going to be more tolerance and celebration of diversity. Um, and then I also think that we're gonna be sort of seeing where technology takes us, um, both from the perspective of how will that technology normalize a lot of things that now we, we view as being fringe. Um, and also will those technologies enable us to you know, educate better and to be able to get people access even to information about sex that they, really want to have and they can really sort of learn at a deeper level when they have maybe perhaps a more immersive experience. So, so those are kind of my two, sort of the two themes I kind of have in mind. Will it all bring us back to the fact that the way two people interact with each other and the connection that goes between them be the thing that defines however we want to experience this thing called sex? You know, yes and no, <clears throat> because I think that they're also so yes, right? I mean, I think obviously the connection between two people or three people or four mm -hmm. people, however many are having sex is obviously an incredibly, you know, beautiful, meaningful, magical human element that is incredibly important. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like there's this an empowerment on the individual level where, you know, because of, you know, especially among women who for so long have been taught that female sexuality is something that shouldn't really be discussed or celebrated or talked about, you know, for a long time, clitor the clitoris wasn't even in sexual anatomy books, right? It wasn't viewed as, as important because it didn't play a central role in reproduction. So I think now with sort of this increased, you know, and for a long time, even if you looked at companies that produce sex toys, a lot of their marketing messages would only show those sex toys if they were being used in the context of couples play, right? So mm. the idea that a woman would be able to have an orgasm on her own without a partner was something that even today is very threatening to a lot of people. So, you know, I think that it's important to really kind of hold these two ideas kind of in your head at the same time, which is that, yes, our, our need for connection to other people and the type of, you know, intense feelings of, you know, meaning and connection that can come from sex are essential. And no matter what kind of technology you have, that's never going to go away. At the same time, we all deserve 
to understand and feel knowledgeable about our own bodies. And as part of that, it means feeling knowledgeable and, and not ashamed of the pleasure that our bodies can give us with or without a partner. So, yeah, so I, I kind of think those two ideas are sort of important to, to hold together, even though at times they may seem like they're, you know, not speaking to exactly the same thing, they really can, right? I mean, sex can be wonderful in the context of a relationship. It can be wonderful in the context of a hookup. It can be <clears throat> wonderful in the context of a person who's just pleasuring themselves. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it can make us happy in a lot of different ways. And in a different context, the pleasure of having you on the show has been absolutely wonderful. And I really thank you for taking the time and joining us. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. That was a fantastic conversation with such a neat lady. I can totally understand why people just love taking her class. And that will do it for 2021 on what women and other wonderful humans want and what a 2022 we have in store with fetish model legend, Jewel Marceau joining us. Jim Weathers, the amazing fetish producer from California who runs Bondage Cafe and has made so many of my fantasies come to life on video. And also Lady Vi, the Satanatrix. She has an amazing story to tell and she's such a nice person for being so mean and evil. Those are all people that are coming up in 2022. And next week, it will be Mistress Petra Hunter from Dallas, who has an amazing presence on screen. And I'm sure she has that same amazing presence in person as well. Can't wait to visit with Mistress Petra Hunter next week on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Until then, I'm John, as always known as Hi There, Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time. And I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. And oh yes, Happy New Year. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky done differently.